This is the Bell Books and Stories podcast with me, Kay Hutchison. Welcome, I'm your host, Kay Hutchison, and you're listening to the Bell Media podcast, where we take a look at some great books and the stories behind the books. In this episode, I'm speaking to journalist, broadcaster, TV exec and author Stuart Cosgrove. He's had an interesting career. He started out as a fanzine writer on the Northern Soul scene before joining the black music newspaper Echoes as a staff writer. He became media editor with the NME and was a feature writer for a range of newspapers and magazines. He joined the UK's trailblazing television station Channel 4 in 1994 and stayed for an incredible 21 years. He was controller of arts and entertainment, and then head of programmes. He was responsible for many successful shows, including the reinvention of The Great British Bake Off, a show format that has garnered worldwide success. In 2005, he was named Broadcaster of the Year in the Glenfiddich Spirit of Scotland Awards. That must have been a good party. And in 2012, he won numerous awards, including a BAFTA and Royal Television Society Award for Channel 4's groundbreaking coverage of the London 2012 Paralympics. As if that wasn't enough, he also has a number of degrees. He graduated in drama and English at Hull University and has a PhD in modern American theatre history. He has studied at the Wharton Business School of the University of Pennsylvania and the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard and he has a number of honorary doctorates and professorships across the UK. And of course, he's a successful author of a number of books that bring together the political, the social and the musical in some unique and deeply researched stories of the 60s. His books include The Soul Trilogy, Detroit 67, Memphis 68 and Harlem 69, and now he's written Cassius X, set in Miami in 1963, just as the young boxer starts on his path to becoming the greatest sportsman of all time. I'm particularly interested in the story behind this book and what Stuart did to bring the many strands together in such a compelling way. I'm delighted to welcome Stuart Cosgrove. Hello, Stuart. How are you doing? Very well indeed, Kay. It's a long time since we last spoke, but lovely to hear your voice. Indeed, mutual. Um... I wonder um, if you have ever imagined, given all the things I've just said about what you've ended up doing, Channel 4, writing books, hosting a radio show for over a quarter of a century. Um, We'll come on to that. But how does a wee boy from Perth in Scotland come to become totally fascinated by soul music? And I want to ask what northern soul music actually is, because I think some people like to know. Okay, well, let let me start with the first of those. When I was a young uh, kid growing up, a a teenager, about the age of 14, I grew up in a housing scheme in the north side of Perth called Letham. It's quite a big, uh, expansive um, council housing scheme. And in the middle of the scheme is a community centre. And the community centre, not unlike other places all over the UK, uh, had a, a youth club based within it. Uh, And that youth club had a disco on Friday nights uh, and the DJ played the dominant uh, joyful youth music of that era, which was Motown, Stax, soul music, a little bit of reggae and some kind of power pop. And of course, I fell in love with a Motown uh, 
uh, element of it and and sort of fell in love almost as a consequence of that with the city of Detroit, which has been uh, a huge kind of um, uh, oasis in my life. I've always followed the music and the politics and the news and the uh, all the kind of weird things that have happened to Detroit over the years. And Northern Soul, what, what's the derivation of that? Okay, Northern Soul is, is a specific subculture um, which emerged really in the late 60s as, as a kind of adjunct of the mod scene. Uh, and the north of Northern Soul tends to refer to the industrial north of England, the areas around Lancashire and Yorkshire, uh, where the scene uh, where the scene still is uh, very vibrant. And there's all, obviously a Scottish dimension to that as well. But what differentiates Northern Soul from other soul scenes is it's actually a scene based on record collecting and dancing. And the records that Northern Soul scene ha- ha- have kind of um, if you like, highlighted, have often been records that didn't succeed in America. Now, a lot of people use that as a criticism, saying, oh, well, maybe they weren't good enough. But actually, if you lived in a city like Detroit or Chicago or Atlanta, Georgia, and you were singing and and you were kind of based in an African-American neighborhood there and you brought out your first record, you could usually tend to only afford to maybe press up 300, 400 copies. And after many, many years, they simply disappear. If they don't have commercial success, there aren't copies to be had. And so DJs and collectors in the Northern Soul scene sought out those rarities and those obscure pieces of music that for commercial reasons hadn't actually broken into the charts. So it's a collector scene, it's a rare soul scene, and it's a dance scene. Oh, it's fantastic. And I, I, I think 40 years on from these early interests that you had, you're still going to clubs, still dancing and still collecting records. Tell me about your massive collection. Well, I think the thing about the Northern Soul scene is it's not actually measured by volume. So having 20,000 records isn't the point. The point really is to do with kind of quality and also the kind of cultural importance of it so the records I've got I've got a lot of records but the records that are kind of at the core of my collection are locked away in a walk-in cupboard with a padlock on the door and in actual fact um, without getting into too much detail about the cost of them the records are worth considerably more than the houses Um, (laughs) and that's because you can have records that are worth you know anything from 50 pound up to you know 15,000 pound it's not uncommon in the collector scene so uh, a box of records could easily have a hundred thousand pounds worth of value in it well i won't ask you about your favorite because it's probably you've probably got hundreds of favorites don't you yeah oh (laughs) thousands of them and they change weekly daily uh, and when i get a kind of new bit of information or when i dig deeper into the record it sometimes ignites in you uh, a love of it that you maybe didn't even have when you first heard it yeah and we change over time yeah and and you're football mad too what has it been like following st johnson for all these years in scotland you're probably best known as the co-host of um off the ball that's right well Kay, i used to say it had been a, a journey through thin and thin rather than thick and thin uh, but, I, but I, I must say that um since we won the scottish cup a um, few years back, uh, in a famous day in the club's history, uh, mocking St. Johnson, which I often did because you were effectively self-mocking, is something I've kind of let go a little bit because they've got a, a, a hugely uh, proud and actually quite substantial history for a small town team. So in lots of ways, I've given up 
uh, taking the mickey out of them. Periodically, I have a laugh at their expense, but I'm certainly not undermining them because their efforts and their contribution to the community that they come from is absolutely huge. Oh, that's a, that's just an absolutely brilliant story. I want to come on to the, to your books now. Yeah. Um. So your new book, it's called Cassie's X. It's by yeah. Cassie's Clay, but it's much more than a biography. Yeah. It's more an exploration of his life at a key turning point, and it's set against the the backdrop of great social and political change, um, and at a sort of time when much of America was hostile to him. Yes, yeah. I mean, I think now that we reflect back on the life of uh, the man that became Muhammad Ali, you know, with those images of him, for example, lighting the Olympic flame, and there's a tendency to believe wrongly that he was a, a universally loved character. He, right from the very beginning, Cassius was a very divided character. And as you say about the book, uh, rather than it being a full end-to-end biography from birth to death, it focuses down on several months really in the year 1963, um, when he has uh, abandoned his slave name, Clay, and has taken on uh, the cancellation uh, of that name, X, uh, and he's known as Cassius X to himself, to his brother, uh, to the movement, to the Nation of Islam, but he still boxes under the name Cassius Clay, that's what's on his contracts. So to some extent, the term Cassius X is... I wouldn't say it was his secret name because people knew it. It was the name that he lived by uh, during those crucial years before he defeated Sonny Liston for the heavyweight championship of the world. And it was on the point of him being the heavyweight championship of the world that uh, the Nation of Islam, if you like, Rush released his um, him being fully uh, endorsed by the movement and gave him the name Muhammad Ali. And uh, obviously you're known already for your soul trilogy yeah. uh, of programmes, which I mentioned in the introduction. Um, how much did you see this book as a natural progression from that trilogy, even if it's about a time that's you know five or six years earlier? Yeah, I actually think that in some respects you could read the book as a prequel to the trilogy in as much as, as you say, it shares many of the same trends or themes of it. Uh, One, of course, which is the emergence of the civil rights movement and the living in an era of segregation in the southern states. And it picks up on Cassius as he leaves his home in um, uh, Louisville, Kentucky, and moves to Miami, where uh, he trains at the Fifth Street Gym, uh, owned by Chris Dundee, the brother of his manager, Angelo Dundee. Uh, and so it kind of picks up with him at a point when he's already building up his professional reputation. But um, these are kind of divided times, and um, we know that he's a man with all sorts of different kind of skills. Curiously enough, I think I'm the first person that's ever wrote about his love of close-up magic. He, he loved magic tricks. and um, That's funny. <laughs> it is weird, and he would play magic tricks with kids and you know things like that. But the way that I use him as a character is he's a witness to the early days of Soul. Uh, so the book could be uh, conceived as, you know, Cassius X and the first days of Soul music. And how much of the story did you know before you embarked on the project? And and was there a, a particular instance that more most surprised you about what he was dealing with? Uh, well, I knew the overall kind of basic biography of his life. Uh, and of course, he's a significant figure in Detroit 67 when he visits Detroit in the uh, spring of 1967, literally, I mean, he, he he fights in Detroit 
two days before he's stripped of his um, titles by because of refusing to uh, accept the draft and going to Vietnam. Uh, and so he, he's appeared in the trilogy as a walk-on character. He's not from Detroit, but he boxed there in an exhibition match in the spring of 1967. Um, so I knew he, he, a good bit about his overall official biography, but of course his early days are less written about and they've been less delved into. And I'm a bit of a kind of obsessive kind of researcher anyway, Kay. Um, one of the things I love doing is digging deeper and deeper into stories. And so one of the first things I do is I look at his high school. He, he went to Central High School in uh, Louisville, uh, and therefore you can start looking at the history of the school, go onto websites, go onto Facebook pages, and start to find out and research the people he went to school with. And there are three characters that kind of recur across the book, many of them uh, caught up in the soul music scene, not least his sparring partner and close friend Jimmy Ellis, who was a great, great soul singer and whose gospel group signed to Atlantic Records later in the 60s. So, you know, I, I kind of look for those kind of deeper relationships that make the story of soul music and the story of boxing come alive for more general readers. I was just going to actually come on to ask you a little bit more about the research. And obviously, you've been involved in research for many years. So the internet must be an absolute treasure trove for you now in the way that you probably had to go places, look at books, and now you can access things in all sorts of different ways. Yeah, yeah, yes and no. I mean, yes, because you're right that the web gives you direct access to look up things. I mean, for example, if you wanted to look up the school that Cassius attended, then of course you can go on Google Earth and actually look at the school and work out what the intersections and the street names where you can do all of that in ways that you couldn't have done um a dozen years ago but but there's still an awful lot of stuff that is not on the web and you know i, I spend a bit of time going out to america that i've got a kind of little research ritual i go to um a campus, University of Michigan campus in a town called Ann Arbor, which is about eight miles away from Detroit. And on the campus, they have a, a great, great university. And what's special about it for me is it has the newspapers of every significant town and city in America, either physically or on microform. And I can sit there. So if I, for example, take um, Cassius, I could look at, say, March 1963, um, when he did spend a time back home uh, at his parents' house. I, I can look at the local newspapers from Louisville, Kentucky, in that library in ways that you couldn't get from a direct search on Google. And, of course, you can interview people uh, via the web or you can communicate with them, like, through Facebook Messenger. But there's nothing quite like sitting down with them and getting them to talk about their memories over a much longer period of time. Yeah, and you can direct the, the questions as well. The thing that I'm struck by when I read it is that, that it, honestly, it really comes out from the page, the sheer joy that you have in the research. Because, yes, there's the social, political, and, you know, the sport, there's music, musicians, clubs, hotels, but the personal details about the people that are woven into the story about the relationship between Cassie's and the other boxes, his love life, even what Cassie's thinks about Malcolm X and how his views change over time. I mean, you bring in all these um, uh, sort of famous names that he was in touch with, you know, Stevie Wonder and Christine Keeler, even Sonny Lister. It, it really, really does come out as just a kind of huge enjoyment in the research and just 
uncovering all this magical information. Is that how it feels to you? Yeah, yes, it is very much that. Uh, you know, thanks for kind of summarising that because I do take a lot of kind of joy in it. I love the research process, um, but I would go further than that and to say that, you know, I'm engaged in something that I really love, the music I love, a time that I feel was amongst one of the most kind of edgy, political and significant in in, in our lifetimes and in history. And, uh, you know, I've been very, very uh, lucky in life, Kay. I worked, as you know, for 20 years at Channel 4, one of the best TV stations in the world. And I've always had... Uh, not only pride in that, but but the sense in which going into work should not be painful. Uh, and for most of my time in life, I've been able to live out that um, glorious motto. And when I start a new book or I start a new project, I'm always starting it with a degree of hope in my heart. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> but actually, I've always sort of thinking about this beautiful connection between the razzmatazz, the kind of entertainment industry, but the, the the issues underneath it. And your book seems incredibly timely. What would you say about that? Just everything that's going on just now, COVID, you know, Black Lives Matter. Yeah, well, the, the good thing about the trilogy and indeed this book, Cassius X, is it does touch these um, stories that um, are, are very prevalent within the culture and society. There's a chapter in uh, Memphis 68 in which a young man is killed by the Memphis Police Department for having supposedly um, stolen a television. Um, but when, uh, of course, witnesses get to the scene, there is no television. He's supposed to have attacked the officer with a knife, but there is no knife. Uh, and within three or four months of the young man's death, all of the corroboration and all of the evidence and all of the clothing and that ha had been thrown into the Mississippi River by the Memphis police, clearly destroying evidence. And so in some respects, that chapter, when you read it, I I've written it almost as a, as a kind of prequel to the assassination of Martin Luther King. But if you read it alone and stand alone as a, a, as a chapter, it could be today and it could be a story from the Black Lives Matter movement, you know. So, yeah, I, I'm very conscious of writing things that will resonate. You can't predict the future, but I think if you write, you know, truthfully about things, you'll pick up a kind of vibe of a modernity about it. So um, I'm intrigued, though, because you, you are an extremely busy man. You are always doing interviews and people want you in newspapers. I've read countless articles about you. How on earth do you find time for the writing? Because you, you know, um, it requires a lot of time. How, how do you fit it in? Well, the, the obvious thing is that uh, writing is one of my passions and therefore not just my work, it's, it's also a hobby. Um, and, you know, I don't play golf. I don't drive. I'm not a heavy drinker, so I don't waste time in pubs talking to guys about my handicap. I'm usually at home reading and writing and, and uh, experimenting and, and actually researching. So whilst it is, I have got a great capacity for work and I work hard and I do a lot of projects simultaneously, it's also the case as well, Kay, that I don't tend to waste time. I'm not a great kind of believer in thinking, right, well, I'll have a day off tomorrow and just chill out and, you know, maybe in the evening I'll go down to the pub. I'm not that kind of person. And, you know, one odd thing about me, um, I'm a wee bit of a sociable loner, if I'm honest. You know, I like spending time, you know, on my own researching and that. And I was asked in one of, it wasn't even an interview, it was um, 
it was a kind of um, web kind of uh, podcast thing for a football um, podcast. And the guy asked me, he was a Glasgow guy, and he asked me where my local was. And I, I kind of was actually quite taken aback by the question because I can't remember a time when I've ever had a local, when I've gone to a pub at night, known the barman, known the people in the pub, sat down and talked to them about the events of the day. It's just not what I do. Uh, I would be much more likely to be found poring over a, a screen or, as you say, researching the web or travelling off to uh, an event in the north of England or you know, being on, on a kind of a Northern Soul auction site. So these are the ways that I get my thrills and my fun. Sounds like paradise to me. And I feel actually quite quite similar, like um, quiet time and all the rest of it. Um, do you have a particular way of writing at a certain time? Are you a late person? Is it got to be really quiet? And you must be extremely organised as well to, to make sure you do all these things. Although maybe you're just working flat out all the time. Maybe you're just keep busy all the time and that's why you you deliver so much and produce so much yeah well well I think the uh, honest answer to that is that um, I provide um, a kind of way in which uh, I can write books and write them efficiently uh, there's an odd thing in going back to days at channel four one of channel four's commercial success as a broadcaster was that it was great evolving um, factual formats you know ways of kind of looking at anything from kind of relationships or diet or clothes or and putting it into a format that uh, people could enjoy and watch at eight o'clock at night on the television. So if you looked at something like Location Location or Super Nanny or any of these things, um, they became kind of heavily formatted. If you look at my books, uh, I'm not saying they're necessarily in, influenced by Super Nanny or anything like that, but the books have an inherent structure within them. The trilogy, for example, are all set in a single city across a single year, Detroit 67. Uh, and therefore, they follow pretty much the uh, months of the year, January, February, March, all the way through. So you've got 12 chapters um, and you've got a clear structure. Now, that's really useful for the reader because it gives them a kind of banister to hold on to as they're reading the book of a kind of clarity, if you like. Uh, but for me as a writer, it makes uh, the writing clearer as well. I know before I embark on a book, I know what I'm writing. And quite a lot of books that you read, uh, particularly in the world of fiction, people have started with no real sense of where the story's going, no no, no understanding of how they'll conclude the story. And whilst they might be brilliant writers that can imagine, um, you know, a, a forest in the north of Scotland, they, they do not necessarily have a clear structure or a storyline. And for me, knowing all of that before you begin is part of the kind of process, you know. Oh, can I just ask about um, the Malcolm X? Because obviously, you know, a lot of people looking at the title will think, oh, that must be connected with Malcolm X. Can you say a wee bit about the relationship between um, Cassius and um, Malcolm X, the, the way you portray it in the book? Well, the first thing really is that the two men didn't know each other until um, the spring of 1962, when the then Cassius Marcellus Clay uh, travelled uh, by car with his brother and uh, a local uh, member of the Nation of Islam in Miami, and they travelled north to Detroit uh, to what was effectively a rally for um, a, a young uh, Muslim guy who had been shot in Los Angeles. So it was a kind of fundraiser for his 
um, for his life and death. Um, and they met each other in a cafe next to the place where this um, event was taking place. So the first time he'd ever set eyes on uh, Malcolm Little, who, who of course, became Malcolm X. Now, in order that you understand this, the requirement for conversion to the nation of Islam is that your first um, gesture is that you eliminate and cancel your slave name in order to be able to take a new name that becomes effectively your name. In the case of Cassius X, that became Muhammad Ali. Um, but the X is effectively the elimination of your slave name. Now, curiously, um, Cassius was based in the Miami mosque and um, uh, Malcolm X who had been in prison, was also from Lansing in Michigan. So not only were they away from the big, big epicenters of the Nation of Islam, Chicago, Detroit, New York, Harlem, all of those areas, uh, they also had Christian names or, you know, or first names, let's say that'd be more accurate, first names that were themselves unusual, Cassius and Malcolm. Um, and so they became the first person with that name who uh, at their mosque, and therefore they took on X as their uh, cancelled name. Uh, if they had a more common first name, say James, or named Charles, for example, there might be 10 or 12 people with that name ahead of them in the queue to convert. So, for example, one, one of the guys who actually evented, eventually ended up assassinating Malcolm X was called Charles 15X, you know. In other words, there was kind of 14 guys ahead of him in the queue at his mosque to convert. So the X is only given to someone who is the only person at their mosque converting, and that's usually because their first name is slightly more uh, unconventional. Fascinating. And um, I, I want to ask you about um, a couple of interesting things that have happened to you in your life. Um, slightly on the lighter side before um, I talk about new things that you're doing um, so I've got I've got th I've picked up three actually and you can take your pick if you want to talk about one but your uh, son Jack was in a Beyonce video yeah you also had a very interesting and maybe not particularly pleasant experience before you married in India and the last thing was this it's really funny because I went to see uh, the police where um, the great train robbery was done a couple of years back. And uh, I just thought it was just a, a lovely thing that in August 1963, you and your family were stuck in a train near Carlisle for six hours. Yeah. And it was only afterwards you found out what it was actually because of the great train robbery. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was It was odd. It was We'd been down at my... Um... Uh, my my grandmother's uh, house in Cumbria, and we'd been there really kind of on on uh, holiday, and to some extent it was kind of bereavement holiday. My father had died in a car crash uh, a little bit earlier, and uh, we were down all all of us, you know, my mum and my two sisters, and it was only when we were coming back we were on this train, and it stopped, it juddered to a halt. And it just wouldn't move and wouldn't move. And then eventually you would see guys on the line and then there was police and they kind of communicated to us that there had been something wrong, not with our train, with another train. Uh, and they didn't say which line it was on, but we were being held up almost as part of a kind of uh, network rail investigation into what had happened and whether the um, signals had been tampered with or whether 
the robbers had managed to get on board another train and were heading north. They, it was the very early days of it, so they had great, no great knowledge about even. I don't think they even knew at that time that the robbers had uh, sequestrated a farm and were hiding in the farmyard. All of that was kind of unknown to them. Uh, all they knew was a train had been robbed and it was a Glasgow-London train, so they just closed the London-Glasgow line. We happened to be at Carlisle at the time when they did it. So, yeah, it's kind of one of these weird little kind of coincidences in your life that you remember when you are every time the great train robbery comes on the telly. Yeah, I was part of that. Yeah, I know that. (laughs) Let me tell you my boring story about that. Yeah. yeah. Um, And of course, yes, uh, all those other things that you you mentioned, but... uh, most important amongst them, of course, was the, the the birth of the irreconcilable Jack Cosgrove, wee Jack, who's an absolute uh, blisterer of a guy. I mean, just taking him to school this morning, and you know what? I, first of all, what, what age is he now? He's, he, he's eight. He's coming up to eight. It's his birthday in three weeks' time, so he's seven just now, and he'll become eight. Um, but you know what? He's one of the most best looking guys I've ever seen in my life and when the sun shines and he gets his little kind of slanking um, uh, tan he just looks like a million dollars I took him down to after lockdown started to ease a bit I took him to Handsome Jack's the barber shop in uh, Duke Street in Denison where we live and the guy cuts hair in that kind of trendy footballer's way and we Jack's got this kind of really cool haircut his dark tan skin and see when I walk down the road with him I just think my god I wish I'd been as good looking as you <laughs> <laughs> you love your son you love your son and um that's Sri Lankan and that's come from your wife yeah yeah Sharani my wife is a Sri Lankan she's a Sri Lankan Tamil uh, grew up in in Sri Lanka and then moved to Kent when she was a young woman uh, went to school in Sri Lanka and then came here to go to high school and then university. And we met each other firstly when I was at the NME and then uh, subsequently I was doing a, a film for Channel 4 and she was producing it, so we met again. And um, our, our, if you like, our, our relationship uh, grew from there and we got married in Sri Lanka. Uh, and of course, I had always been one of these guys who, well, who frankly avoids commitment, avoids children, all of that. And then out of nowhere, uh, I'm married uh, and uh, later on in the marriage, uh, we we uh, have a child and this child is just the most amazing wee character you could ever imagine. Um, just somebody who uh, I, I really love. And talking about Beyonce, uh, Shirani had been in one of these trendy Soho uh, clubs that they have, something I think it was called Soho House. And she was walking one day, she had wee Jack with her, who must have been about four, three or four. And uh, she's sitting there with a friend having some drinks and a guy comes up to her, and he was a guy who'd worked with her on a Channel 4 hip-hop program that she'd been producing, and he was the director. So they chatted away, and Shirani looked up and saw this woman saying, wow, what a beautiful little baby. And she had just she just thought, God, that, that's Beyonce knows. And Beyonce had been in London uh, doing videos and interviews and things like that, and this was her video director. So they said, we've got a key shoot tomorrow. Do you want Jack to come to the shoot? So they sent this kind of luxury car the next morning to our flat, took the little man with with them. He was he was plucked at the door by a production manager, rushed onto the set and handed over to this black girl. The set's actually like a carnival fairground and he's in the shots kind of dancing away as a young baby to the music. But here's the weirdest thing of all. 
okay. This could have gone hopelessly wrong because they took the clothes that he was wearing, the jackets and, that he was wearing, and dressed him from the costume department. For some reason, and I have to assume somebody up there loves me, they gave him a Scotland Adidas top. So yes. that's what he's actually wearing in the in the film. And you know, uh, that could could you imagine if they'd given him an England top? I'd have been. Yes, exactly. You'd have been been saying it needs to be cut out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no way. I mean, I know it's just a, a little one, but I mean, he does look absolutely fantastic. He's a lovely wee boy. Yeah. Oh, he's absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. And and obviously he's start he's started young so who knows where he's going to end up that will be very interesting to find out indeed and he will inherit um unless something goes horribly wrong he will inherit one of the best soul record collectors in the world yeah indeed and he's got a hard act to follow with all your fabulous books I'm just wondering, are there other books in the go? I mean, Cassie says, obviously, it's, has, it's not out yet, but people can it's, get it. It's out in two weeks' time, Kay, and it's actually in hardback then and paperback, which is the kind of ritual we go through with the trilogy as well. But um, it's out simultaneously on the same day in America through a major Chicago publisher. And then we uh, sold last week the translation rights to... Uh, random house in Germany, so it comes out in Germany. I think in six months' time, once it's been translated, so it's already doing well in terms of kind of in- international visibility. And it's up to me over the next six weeks to get out there and sell it and promote it and things like that, which I'm always very happy to do. So you'll be sick listening to me. <laughs> no, it's it's absolutely it's absolutely fascinating. Um, have you got any other books on the go just before? Yeah, I, I'm actually working on a, a book which I've kind of signed up to do and uh, which will come out uh, in a year's time. Uh, and again, it has some of the same kind of spine and origins, but a very different kind of book this time. And it's just simply called Hey America, Black Music and the White House, right? And basically, it's the story of how the presidents, all the presidents from Kennedy through Lyndon Johnson up through Carter and Reagan and eventually up to Barack Obama uh, are influenced or in some way connected with the story of soul music as it evolves into uh, R&B and hip hop and dance music and club music and things like that. So it's, it's, it's a different type of book, but it'll have many of the very recognisable elements of it. Deep research, connections to political events in the real world uh, and of course much on the music and the musicians too oh it sounds really in your style and absolute that sounds like another wonderful one oh Stuart thank you so much for being my guest on the podcast today um I'll just give a little bit of information um for Cassie's ex out next month published by Polygon Books in Hardback it's got fantastic photographs and there's even a boxing and soul music playlist at the back, which I couldn't help looking up. I actually ended up doing a lot of research myself because <laughs> I, I got down this little rabbit hole of, oh, I'll listen to that one and yeah. listen to that one. Um, I really enjoyed it. Be sure to pick up your copy. It's a fascinating read. And I would just say, look up Cassius X and Stuart Cosgrove online. That will do the trick. Yep. And I'll include the link with the podcast too. Thanks very much, Stuart. Thanks a lot, Kate. And last but not least, thank you for listening to the Bell Books and Stories podcast. Studio production was Perrin Sledge and I'm Kay Hutchison. There are lots of interesting podcasts in the series now. Book to Screen with Kate Sinclair, including the story of the discovery of Slumdog Millionaire, feminist writer Mavis Cheek on her novel Amenable Women and talking about her writing retreats. And don't forget Bruce Daisley's 
Sunday Times bestseller, The Joy of Work. Amazing how much of his work practice advice still resonates in a time of COVID. Anyway, hope you'll find time for a listen. And please join me next time. In the meantime, bye for now.